I, I love the book of Exodus. I'm a huge fan of the book of Exodus. It is the second book of the Bible that accounts the events of Moses and the people of Israel being set free from slavery. And a couple of years ago, I was going slowly through the book, taking a small section each day, and I was really blessed by it. And since then, I found myself coming back again and again to this particular book. And think about it, even the secular world outside of the church have been drawn to this story over the years, which has become the source of multiple films and, and other art forms. And there is something so captivating about this, this epic story of redemption. And for the next couple of weeks, we're going to take a little detour from First Kings, which we've been going through. And we're going to, take, um, we're going to look at a couple of events uh, recorded in Exodus. In the last couple of weeks, we saw, um, if you remember, we saw the showdown the last couple of weeks between the false god Baal and his prophets against the true God and his servant Elijah. And basically, God showed to all those watching that there is only one true God who is worthy of worship and adoration, and that was the God of Israel. And in our time today, we're going to look at another showdown. And this time it's going to be between the false gods of Egypt and the true God of Israel. And once again, God wants us to be in no doubt that there is only one true and living God and that is the great I Am. And he, he wants Israel to know and he wants all of Egypt to know and he wants all of us to know, reading it thousands of years later, this amazing truth. So just to kind of give you a bit of background before we jump into our text, and we're going to be looking at a number of different verses kind of scattered around Exodus, but I would encourage you in your own time, um, I would encourage you to read through Exodus. It's such, uh, it's such an amazing book and it's, it's this amazing narrative and it's, it's so easy to kind of just be drawn into it. Um, but basically just to kind of get us up to speed as what's been happening on before we jump into a number of different things. Israel have been enslaved for literally hundreds of years. And Moses, a Hebrew, raised as an Egyptian, has been in exile for 40 years when God appears to him in in the form of a burning bush. And in this amazing encounter, we see God put an incredible calling on Moses' life God has chosen to send Moses to redeem his people from slavery. And Moses initially responds how most of us would in that situation, which would be, uh, no. Lord God, uh, I think you've got the wrong guy for the job. You've obviously had a slight oversight here. I'm definitely not the guy equipped for such a task. And, and I love that encounter, and that's chapter 3 and 4, because cause God doesn't respond like we, like we would, right? In that situation, we would most likely give Moses a little pep talk, be like, hey Moses, you the man, dude, you, you've got this, man. Come on, rise up, you can do this. And yet God doesn't really seem to say any of that. God simply says this, he says, I will be with you. And God doesn't focus on Moses' ability to fulfil the task, God simply focuses on his own ability. God focuses on God's ability. Because the power to complete the task is not going to be found in Moses, it's going to be found in God. 
He is the one who's going to bring about the salvation and Moses is, is simply a tool used by God. And, I, and, and I say, I, that's the same for us. There'll be moments where God calls us to do things where we're like, Lord, there's no way I can do that. And he turns around to us and says, yes, I know. I know you can't do it, but allow me to do it through you. And we go going back to Moses. Although God says all of these amazing things and promises, Moses, however, still continues to object. And so God, in his grace and patience, sends Aaron, his brother, to speak with him, to speak for him, to be, in essence, his mouthpiece. He's like, hey, Moses, look, fine. Look, you know what? I'm actually going to send somebody to help you. I'm going to send somebody to go with you and help you. And we're going to complete this mission. And this is where we're now going to pick it up today in Exodus chapter 5. So if you've got a Bible, do feel free to turn to Exodus chapter 5. As I say, because we're going to be jumping on a number of different verses, we don't have specific handouts um, today. But if you've got a Bible, do turn to Exodus chapter 5, verse 1 to 2. I'm reading from the, uh, the ESV version. So, and it says this, so Exodus 5, and verse 1 to 2 says this. Afterward, Moses and Aaron went and said to Pharaoh, Thus says the Lord, the God of Israel, Let my people go, that they may hold a feast to me in the wilderness. But Pharaoh said, Who is the Lord, that I should obey his voice and let Israel go? I do not know the Lord, and moreover, I will not let Israel go. Moses and Aaron, they go before Pharaoh, the king of Egypt, and they deliver a message that God has given them. And it is one simple instruction, which is perhaps the classic phrase, and it's even a song, which we've all mostly heard, which is, let my people go. And and as we're going through this text, it's easy to, to miss how God identifies himself with the people of Israel in those two simple words, my people. They are his people. They belong to him and he is taking personal responsibility for them and their well-being and he will not stand for their mistreatment, for the mistreatment of his people. But also notice that God is not just setting them free from something. He's not just setting them free from slavery, he's also setting them free to something and that something is himself. That they would make a feast to him, that they would worship him. And as we saw, Pharaoh's response was simply no. The Egyptians uh, believed in multiple gods and they also believed that the Pharaoh was in essence a divine incarnation of one of them. So in essence, they viewed Pharaoh as a god. And Pharaoh viewed himself as a god. In his mind, Pharaoh sees himself as god and thus shows no respect or reverence for the true living god of the Hebrews, the great I Am. Pharaoh refuses to acknowledge him. He refuses to obey him. And this, 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 this refusal to acknowledge and obey God is really the heart of all sin. 
Every sin that we commit ultimately comes down to us trying to take the place of God. A pastor um, and kind of theologian, a guy called John Stott, explains it this way in his book, The Cross of Christ, where he says this, The essence of sin is we human beings substituting ourselves for God. Essentially, sin is when we make ourselves God. And we're all, we're all guilty of this. And yes, sure thing, we may not actually go around maybe like Pharaoh making people bow to us, or we may not sit on a throne like Pharaoh, but we've all believed the lie. The same lie told to Adam and Eve in the garden way back, right at the beginning of the Bible. That lie that we could be God. Paul describes it this way in Romans, where he says this in Romans 1, in verse 19 to 25. He says this, For what can be known about God is plain to them, because God has shown it to them. For his invisible attributes, namely his eternal power and divine nature, have been clearly perceived ever since the creation of the world and the things that have been made. So they are without excuse. For although they knew God, they did not honour him as God or give thanks to him. But they became futile in their thinking and their foolish hearts were darkened. Claiming to be wise, they became fools and they exchanged the glory of the immortal God for images resembling mortal man and birds and animals and creeping things. Therefore, God gave them up in the lust of their hearts to impurity, to the dishonouring of their bodies among themselves because they exchanged the truth about God for a lie and worshipped and served the creature rather than creator who is blessed forever. Amen. You see, we exchanged the truth for a lie. We replace creator God with created beings. Instead of worshipping the creator God, we've worshipped his creation. And that, and, and that can take its form in many different ways. It can be money, it can be power, it can be sex, it can be, it can be a host of different things where we take that which God has created and instead of worshipping God and thanking God, we actually take that which is created and put it in the place where only he should be. But, that's kind of our predicament, that's where we were, but by the grace of God, he's not content to leave us there. God raises up a redeemer from among Israel to demonstrate to Israel and to Egypt and to the world there is only one true God. Moses, as we'll read here, is a foreshadow of another Israelite who would come, another Israelite, another Jew who would be raised up to become a redeemer and his name would be Jesus. He would be our greater Moses who would bring us redemption from our sin. The rest of that John Stock quote says this, and this is our hope. While, as of the first part we read, the essence of sin is we human beings substituting ourselves for God. But then he says this, while the essence of salvation is God substituting himself for us. You see, in our sin we put ourselves where only God deserves to be. But God in his grace puts himself 
where we deserve to be, and that was namely the cross. We deserve to be on that cross for all of our guilt and all of our shame and all of our sin, but Jesus did a great exchange. He exchanged himself for us. He put himself in the place where we should have been. Pharaoh thinks he is God and he could not be further from the truth and he refuses to let Israel go and instead he increases their labour. He essentially makes what was already hardship for them even harder and the people's hope, the, the people's hope once again turns to despair. Because all the people can now see is, man, things were bad, but now things are even worse. But the truth is that God hasn't even started yet. And we're about to witness a showdown. It's going to be the true living God against the false gods of Egypt. God is about to show Israel, he's about to show Egypt, and he's about to show the rest of the world that there is only one true God, and that is him. And once again... He speaks to Moses. Looking at Exodus chapter 6 and verse 2 to 8 to the beginning of the next chapter. So from verse 2 he says, it says this, God spoke to Moses and said to him, I am the Lord. I appear to Abraham, to Isaac and to Jacob as God Almighty, but by my name, the Lord, I did not make myself known to them. I also established my covenant with them to give them the land of Canaan, the land in which they lived as sojourners. Moreover, I have heard the groaning of the people of Israel, whom the Egyptians hold as slaves, and I have remembered my covenant. Say therefore to the people of Israel, I am the Lord, and I will bring you out from under the burdens of the Egyptians. And I will deliver you from slavery to them. And I will redeem you with an outstretched arm and with great acts of judgment. I will take you to be my people and I will be your God. And you shall know that I am the Lord, your God, who has brought you out from under the burdens of the Egyptians. I will bring you into the land that I swore to give Abraham, to Isaac and to Jacob, I will give it to you for a possession. I am the Lord. There is a repeated word, or maybe rather a repeated letter throughout this text, and it is the I. God says this to Moses, I am the Lord. I have heard. I have remembered. I will bring. I will deliver. I will redeem. I will take you I am the Lord, your God. It is God, not Moses, who will save Israel from slavery. And once again, notice the reason. God is taking them to be his people and he will be their God and they will know that he is the true living God. It's all about relationship with him. He is setting them free so that they can be his people. He is setting them free from slavery so that they could be in relationship with him, so he could be their people. And whenever I, when I think, when I often think about the image of slavery, 
I'm often uh, reminded of a film um, called 12 Years a Slave, which some of you may have seen, it was, which was released a few years ago. I do warn you, they're kind of spoilers ahead. So if you don't want to know any spoilers, like, um, close your, cover your ears now. But anyway, I've, I've warned you. So The film essentially tells the story of Solomon, a free black man who is abducted and sold into slavery. And the film is a stark reminder of the horrific experiences of slavery and the slave trade. And it is, it, it's really, it is tough to watch at times. And in the end, Solomon, this is a spoiler, is, a spoiler alert, is finally set free from slavery. And the film ends with him being reunited with his family. So not only is Solomon set free from slavery, but he's also restored to relationship with those he was separated from. And it's this beautiful kind of uh, like crescendo, this, this climax to the movie, the kind of ending scene where he has finally reunited with his family. And uh, you may ask, okay, why is, why is this significant? Why am I bringing this up? Because God does the exact same thing with us. You see, Israel is a picture of us. We also are slaves, but our slavery is to sin. And Jesus comes as our Redeemer. Jesus comes as our greater Moses to set us free from the slavery of sin so that we could be his people, so that we could know God, so that we could walk in relationship with God. Jesus himself says this in John's Gospel in chapter 8, verse 34. Jesus says this, Truly, truly, I say to you, everyone who practices sin is a slave to sin. The slave does not remain in the house forever, but the son remains forever. So if the son sets you free, you will be free indeed. That is the promise that Jesus gives us, that we, although enslaved to sin, Jesus, the son, comes to set us free so that we would be free indeed. And the redemption in Exodus, it basically points us to the greater redemption that was to come through Jesus. God will bring about his, and through Exodus, God is going to bring about his redemption through great acts of judgment. And these acts of judgment will consist of ten plagues brought upon the land of Egypt. And now I've given out a little sheet which you can kind of take with you and we'll kind of use to reference. But basically, on the piece of paper, it will list the ten different plagues. And just kind of quoting from, um, from a pastor in the state, he says, he says this, the ten plagues of Egypt were acts of divine justice by God against the oppressors of his people. They demonstrated the power of the one true God and exposed the gods that the Egyptians worshipped as false. And each plague corresponded to particular Egyptian gods and served to prove both to the Egyptians and the Israelites who the true sovereign ruler was. And, and, and basically I've just, we're not going to spend too much time going through all of them, but even in your own time, it's kind of what the piece of paper just lists out, it lists out the different plagues and it kind of lists out the different Egyptian gods that that would correspond to and then it also lists out the kind of description of what happened for each plague. 
And you can imagine the Egyptians who would worship these different Egyptian gods and then you see these very specific plagues and, and, and how that kind of corresponded to kind of how the gods that they worship. And it's basically God's way of essentially taking down the gods of Egypt right in front of them. You know, when, when the Egyptians turned to the Nile, which is their source of life, and to see that God of Israel could turn that water to blood. You know, and it goes on and on, you know, like, like for frogs, there was a, there's an Egyptian god that literally looked like a frog, and the fact that all these frogs then come down. And, and, and God's doing this to show, not just to the Israelites, to the Egyptians, the God you are worshipping is wrong. And the different plagues are as follows. Water turned to blood, and then a plague of frogs, a plague of gnats, a plague of flies, a plague of the Egyptian livestock becoming diseased and dying, a plague of boils, a plague of hail, a plague of locusts, a plague of darkness. And then the last one, the plague, which is the death of the firstborn. And as I say, each one, essentially each plague exposed a particular God that Egypt worshipped as being false. And my question to you is, what false God have you been guilty of worshipping? What in your life has taken the place of God? Because just like the Egyptians, God wants to show that he is greater. And you can begin by asking yourself questions like this. What do you turn to to find meaning, to find value, to find joy? Is it God or is it something else? And what or, what or who absorbs your heart, your imagination, your dreams? Is it God or is it something else? Who do you look towards to save you is it God or is it something else back to our ten plagues and the first thing that we see from them is that God demonstrates he has complete control over nature not Pharaoh and this is made even clearer by the fact that for some of the plagues God orchestrates them in such a way that they only affect the Egyptians and the Israelites and their area in which they dwelt in is left untouched, it's left unaffected. They're in essence, in moments set apart from the Egyptians. And after each plague, we see this repeated theme of we will see Moses meet with Pharaoh. And yet time and time again, Pharaoh will refuse to let them go. And there are even times when Pharaoh pleads with Moses to end a particular plague. And he even promised to him, he promises that if God ends the plague, I'll let the people go. And then what happens? The plague is ended, God ends the plague and Pharaoh once again goes back on his word and continues to enslave the people. And all these plagues, they culminate into the final tenth plague, which is the one that we're going to briefly focus on. And God informs Moses of what is about to take place and he sends him and Aaron to warn Pharaoh of this final plague, the death of the firstborn. It says this, skipping a few chapters ahead to Exodus chapter 11. Exodus chapter 11 and verses 4 to 6. And it reads this, it says this, So Moses said, Thus says the Lord, About midnight I will go out in the midst of Egypt, and every firstborn in the land of Egypt shall die, from the firstborn of Pharaoh who sits on his throne, even to the firstborn of the slave girl who is behind the handmill, and all the firstborn of the cattle. 
there shall be a great cry throughout all the land of Egypt, such as there has never been or never will be again. But despite the warning, despite all the previous plagues, Pharaoh still refuses to listen. He still refuses to let the people go. And after Moses has finished speaking to Pharaoh and left, God speaks to him once again. It says this in verse 9 of chapter 11. Then the Lord said to Moses, Pharaoh will not listen to you, that my wonders may be multiplied in the land of Egypt. And Moses and Aaron did all these wonders before Pharaoh, and the Lord hardened Pharaoh's heart. And he did not let the people of Israel go out of his land. The Lord hardened Pharaoh's heart. What on earth does that mean? And this is a, a huge theological minefield, but let me just give you a couple of thoughts on the matter. Because the Bible speaks a lot about the heart. It is considered to be the, the seat of our emotions, our intellect, our will, our desire. It is, it is not referring to our physical heart, but rather our spiritual heart, the core of who we are. To have a soft heart, is to have a heart that is open and obedient to God. It is a heart that loves him and desires to follow him. And on the other hand, a hard heart is one that is stubborn, one that is arrogant, a heart that refuses to listen to God. And throughout the ten plagues, we will read many times that Pharaoh's heart was hardened. But these references aren't always, they're not the same each time. They essentially could, you could put it this way, they're divided into kind of three categories. The first one is this, you'll see moments, number one, where Pharaoh's heart was hardened. It doesn't say the instigator, it literally just says Pharaoh's heart was hardened. And two, there'll be times where it says this, that Pharaoh hardened his own heart. And there will be moments, number three, where you will see, where it will say, God hardened Pharaoh's heart. So three things. Pharaoh's heart was hardened. Pharaoh hardened his own heart. God hardened Pharaoh's heart. So, what does it mean to harden one's heart? I would argue this. I would say this. I would try to explain it this way. That it is the strengthening or it's the amplification of a pre-existing conviction. Essentially, it takes a belief that already exists and, and essentially makes it stronger. And for example, Pharaoh did not begin with a soft heart. From the very beginning, Pharaoh's heart was hard towards God and was hard towards his people. And it is then, over the course of time, through, through these three categories, that his heart becomes even harder. So that's the first thing we need to understand. That when God in essence amplifies a conviction that he he already has, it isn't putting a different conviction which, which he could do if he wanted to. God has the ability to change hearts and that gives us hope. If you find in you, you're in that moment where you're like, actually Lord, I'll be honest God, I don't have a heart for you. I'll be honest God, my heart is hardened towards you If you cry out to him and say, God, change my heart, give me a new heart, that is a prayer that God is always waiting and willing 
to answer. But back to, back to Pharaoh, as I say, it's, it is simply, God, essentially when it talks about hardening, it is simply the increasing of what already exists. Or in essence, it's allowing it to grow to its natural conclusion. Or you can maybe think of it this way, if somebody loves God and wants to follow God, God is never going to change that heart to believe the opposite. Which leads us to the huge topic of free will. And we're not going to be able to cover it in the short time we have, but <laughs> let me just say this, God is sovereign. And uh, the, the question we often come is, if God is sovereign, do we truly have a free will? And thus, can we be held responsible? And one pastor would explain it this way, a guy called Paul Tripp, he says it this way, he says this, here's how the sovereignty of God works. It's never a tension between the sovereignty of God and the responsibility of people. Never. The Bible doesn't present that tension. Here's what's going on. God accomplishes his unshakable, his unstoppable sovereign plan through the true validity of people's choices. So, if we ask the question, is, God sovereign, is, it, is, it, is, is it God's sovereignty or my responsibility? And the answer is yes. It's, it's both. We, we even see this in the verse that we just read concerning Pharaoh, because it says that Pharaoh would not listen. Pharaoh hardened his own heart, and it also says that the Lord hardened his heart, and the Bible preaches both. And how do we explain it? Well, we can't. God is far bigger and greater than us. But what is clear from the Bible, which is this, is that we are 100% responsible for the choices that we make, and yet God is completely in control. And that should, that, that, that should in, if anything, I think that should encourage us. The fact that even some of the worst things done to us, God can even still use for a purpose. And even some of the worst mistakes that we, we have ever made, that it cannot stop God from fulfilling his, his greater purposes. And yes, God doesn't want us to go out and make foolish choices. But rather, he calls us to make wise and loving choices. He wants us to make the right choices. He wants us to obey him. It pleases him. But we can also take comfort in the fact that he is fully in control. So the Bible preaches those two truths, that one, we are 100% 100% responsible for the choices we make, but that also that God is 100% in control. And the other thing to consider is that, is that God hardened Pharaoh's heart for a reason, for a purpose. I mean, part of the hardening of his heart was judgment as well. It was God saying that, that unfortunately time has come up and now judgment is, is coming but there's also another reason that he, that he would do this. And it says this, and in the text that we just read, it says that my wonders may be multiplied in the land of Egypt. God does this so that his wonders would be displayed. So that people would see what took place and be left with no doubt who the true God is. Think about it. This is the showdown between the true living God and Pharaoh who believes and proclaims himself to be God. And in this, God shows 
that Pharaoh isn't even God over his own heart. Here's Pharaoh, uh, who thinks he is God of the world, who he has his cities and his armies and his nations, and yet the true God shows that he, that the God of Israel, even has control of Pharaoh's very own heart. Isn't that awesome? His Pharaoh thinks he thinks he is God himself, and yet the God of Israel says, "Look, Pharaoh, you don't even have control of your own heart. If I wanted to even change your heart, I even have the ability to do that." And not only this, but as a result of this final plague, we actually get a, a picture. We get a glimpse of the gospel. We get a glimpse of the good news. Unlike the other plagues in order for the Israelites not to be affected and to lose their own children, there was something that they needed to do. And it says this, skipping ahead to Exodus Exodus 12 and verse 21. It says this, Then Moses called the elders of Israel and said to them, Go, and select lambs for yourselves according to your clans and kill the Passover lamb. Take a bunch of hyssop and and dip it in the blood that is in the basin and touch the lintel and the the two doorposts with the blood that is in the basin. None of you shall go out of the door of his house until morning for the Lord will pass through to strike the Egyptians. And when he sees the blood on the lintel and on the two doorposts, the Lord will pass over the door and will not allow the destroyer to enter your houses to strike you. And you shall observe this white as a statute for you and for your sons forever. And when you come to the land that the Lord will give you, as he has promised, you shall keep this service. And when your children say to you, what do you mean by this service? You shall say, it is the sacrifice of the Lord's Passover, for he passed over the houses of the people of Israel in Egypt when he struck the Egyptians but spared our houses. And the people bowed their heads and they worshipped. And then the people of Israel went and did so as the Lord had commanded Moses and Aaron, so they did. God called the people to kill a perfect lamb and then wipe the blood across the wooden door frames of their homes and then when God passed through to judge the people whenever or wherever he would see the blood he would literally pass over sparing that house from judgment. And this is a celebration which the Jews still celebrate to this day. But the sad thing is is that they don't realise that the Passover was always pointing to a greater Passover to come. You see, Jesus is known by many names, he's known by many titles, and one of those titles is Lamb of God. Jesus is the Lamb of God. Jesus is the Passover Lamb. You see, thousands of years later, Jesus would come. And he would live a perfect life. He would then be killed and his blood would be placed 
on wooden beams, but this time they would be wooden beams of a cross, so that whoever would put their faith and trust in Jesus would be saved from the judgment that they deserved. Just like with the Israelites, for the Christian, the judgment of God passes over us. It's as if literally God's, Jesus' blood has been wiped across the door frame of the Christian. And as judgment comes, God sees that blood and he passes over. Jesus is our Passover lamb who sets us free from slavery, who sets us free from the penalty of sin so that we could be free to worship him like he always desired so that we could be his people and so that he could be our God. Scrolling down to verse 29 of Exodus 12, it says this, At midnight the Lord struck down all the firstborn in the land of Egypt, from the firstborn of Pharaoh who sat on his throne to the firstborn of the captive who was in the dungeon and all the firstborn of the livestock. And Pharaoh rose up in the night, he and his servants and all the Egyptians, and there was a great cry in Egypt, for there was not a house where someone was not dead. And then he summoned Moses and Aaron by night and said, Up, go out from among my people, both you and the people of Israel, and go. Serve the Lord as as you have said. Take your flocks and your herds, as you have said, and be gone and bless me also. Pharaoh, completely crushed, decides to let the people finally go. It all happened just as God said it would. Israel are free to go. They have been set free. All the many years of slavery have finally come to an end. God was faithful they, back, they gather their belongings and they leave Egypt. And now in closing, if we read the continue, continue on with the story, we know that once again Pharaoh will change his mind. Once again Pharaoh will then go chasing after the Israelites with his armies. And we see this miraculous event where God uses Moses to part the waters so that the Israelites could walk through And then as they made it to the other side and as the Egyptian army comes rushing in, then the waters will then cover up again, completely destroying the army. And one of the reasons that God does that, why one of the reasons that God would bring that about, because he wanted the Israelites to see that their enslavement was completely and utterly destroyed that God had completely redeemed them. He can, and and there's, there's that essence, that, that, kind of, that kind of washing away, the washing away of their captivity, the washing away of their wounds and, and, the, and their slavery. And God does it all in front of their eyes. He essentially says, it's like, it's like, Israel, look, I want you to know without a doubt that this is me. I have come, I have protected you, I have rescued you, I have lifted you out of this place. I have once and for all redeemed you. And if you get a chance, have a read of it because it's, it's just such an, an amazing, an amazing account. 
But just in closing, I just want to focus on a couple of things which take place as they literally leave Egypt. It says this in verse 40 to 41 of chapter 12. It says this, The time that the people of Israel lived in Egypt was 430 years. And at the end of 430 years, on that very day, all the hosts of the Lord went out from the land of Egypt. And then there's this, this beautiful detail which is so easy to miss and it's so subtle and it's so easy to miss. The couple verses preceding that, verse 37 says this, A mixed multitude also went up with them and very much livestock, but both flocks and herds and the people of Israel journeyed from Mamesis to Sukkoth, about 600,000 men on foot besides women and children. Look at that first bit of verse 37 where it says, a mixed multitude. What does that mean? A mixed multitude. It means the Israelites didn't leave alone, but some of the Egyptians decided to go with them. It would appear that some of the Egyptians were so convinced by the amazing displays of God that they turned their back on their false gods and their false religion and they decided to follow the true and living God. Just let's look at how radical that is. God used these miracles to show everybody, the Israelites, the Egyptians, the surrounding nations and us reading it thousands of years later that he is the only true living God worthy of our worship and worthy of our praise. As he said himself in Exodus 9.16 but for this purpose I have raised you up to show you my power so that my name may be proclaimed in all the earth. And to this day, these events are still being proclaimed. God's power displayed, but with that power is also an invitation. There is an invitation to join the family of God. There is an invitation to worship the true, the only living God, the only God who is truly able to save, the only God who is truly able to give life. And that is the God that we read of in the Bible. That is the God who would one day become a man, Jesus Christ, and who would die on a cross in our place so that when we put our faith and trust in him, when we repent of our sin and put our faith and trust in him, he would not only forgive us of our wrongdoing, not only would he take the judgment which we deserve and put it on Jesus instead, but then he would also invite us to be a part of his family forever, to be with him in relationship with God himself for all eternity, just as he intended. So the question is this, in closing, which God will you choose to follow? And I think that is a question even as Christians we need to ask ourselves, as Christians we need to reflect on our lives and be like, well actually, I've made this decision to follow Jesus, but how much of, it, how much of my life is he? Am I actually still being 
am I still kind of being captivated by false gods? Am I still being kind of captivated by creation instead of being captivated by God himself? And then for those who don't know Jesus, for those who haven't put their faith and trust in Jesus, Jesus is saying, look, all those other false gods will only lead you to despair and fail you because I am the true living God. Put your faith and trust in me and receive the life that I've always promised. So let us pray together. And let me give you, once again, let's end with that question of which God will we choose to follow? Will we choose to follow and believe the lie by either making ourselves God or following and putting creation as our God? Or will we follow the true living God, Jesus Christ, who died on a cross because he loved us so much and wants to be in relationship with us forever? Let's pray together. Father, I thank you that you came to set us free from slavery. Lord, help us to realise that sin is slavery. And Paul tells us the reason why we shouldn't go back to sin, because it's slavery. And just like how the Israelites are redeemed from Egypt, why, why would we want to also go back to Egypt? Why would we want to go back to slavery? So Lord, as Christians, in those moments when we are tempted to think back to our slavery to sin, Lord, may you remind us that that is exactly what it is. It is slavery. And you have set us free. You have redeemed us from that so that we can know you, so that we could experience the abundance of life that you promised and intended us so that we could walk with you, so that we could know you. So, Father, as Christians, help us to remember that. We want to thank you, Lord. And if there's anybody who isn't a Christian here today, then God is inviting you today to put your faith and your trust in him. And it simply comes by, by, by going to him and praying. And if you want to make a decision today, you can. I'm just going to pray a prayer. And even in your heart right now, just say it in your heart and amen it in your heart, agree with it in your heart. And it's this. And just make it your own. Which is this. It's Jesus I re- Jesus, I'm sorry, I'm a sinner. Jesus, forgive me, I have done wrong against you. I have exchanged you for false gods. I have gone after other things instead of going after you. So Jesus, I accept your death on the cross for me. I accept you as my Passover lamb. And now, Lord Jesus, please may you set me free from slavery so that I can know you, so that I could worship you. Do this in my life, Jesus. Amen. And Lord, I just want to pray, Father, that you would help us to remember these things, Lord, and help us to live out these things, Lord. Lord, that when we think back to Exodus, that you would always remind us of of the greater redemption that it pointed to which was you, Jesus, dying on the cross. So even this week, Jesus, once again remind us and display to us that you are the only true living God worthy of our worship, worthy of our praise, the only true living God who can give us abundance of life that we so desperately seek. So Lord, as we go away from here, bless our conversations. Lord, as we go away from here, help us to remember you, Jesus, and what you did for us our Passover lamb, Jesus, our greater Moses. In your name we ask all of these things. Amen.